Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Brute Force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio. Special Operations Military News and Straight Talk with the Guys in the Community. Hey, what's going on? It's me, Rad, and you are listening to another awesome episode of Soft Rep Radio. But before I get into my next guest today, who you can already see on the screen if you're watching on the YouTubes, is I want to talk to you about my merch store, okay? We have a merch store for Soft Rep. It helps keep the lights on. A little bit goes a long way for us. I love doing this show, and uh, I really appreciate Brandon and everybody, you know, keeping the merch store open. So go support that. And then also, we have a book club. It's uh, softrep.com forward slash book hyphen club. Go check it out. Get involved. If you want to learn about some books that we uh, talk about to the authors, you can get into the book club. Brandon Webb's books are in there, John David Mann. Hopefully we can get my next guest, uh, Robert Spangle of uh, Thousand Yard Style and his book into our book club. And let's welcome him to our show. Welcome, Robert. Well, uh, very, very happy to be here and very honored. So thanks for having me, Rad. Well, you know, today's special guest, kids, is Robert Spangle. And he's a photographer and he's a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. Can you tell us a little bit about the Marine Corps and what you... Uh, how old were you when you enlisted? Kind of the timeline of I went through boot camp, then I got into this other thing, and then I went here. Oh, boy, that, that whole blur. It doesn't have to be that big, though. You can yeah. just get right to it. So I joined in, uh, in 2017, 
got out in 2011. I actually, I signed up when I was 17 and a half. My parents like signed off on me. So I left right after high school. Basically, this is still kind of like the pre-internet military. You know, the internet existed, but social media and all that stuff wasn't really there. And the whole structure of the military wasn't online and transparent. I wanted to go infantry. I was told that I should go recon because I was good at swimming. So I went recon. That was like after boot camp and infantry school, that was like a six month, five, six month training cycle. It was pretty, pretty arduous and familiar to many people. I wound up getting second sent to second recon battalion. And this is a interesting period in the battalion's history and also in force recon history. Force recon had essentially been dissolved. I think about three years before you had debt one guys who'd kind of like gone away and then set up like MSOB, right? So force recon hadn't functionally existed for a few years and they were looking at standing it back up to have it as a new asset, as an asset that was deployable to battle space of those days, which was Iraq and Afghanistan. And a MU, is that a Marine Expeditionary Unit? M-E-U, it is. Is that what you just referenced yeah, right which there? Is a, yeah, which is a nice okay. acronym okay. for sitting on a boat waiting for something bad to happen. So I got really lucky in that I got roped into a very, very senior position, which was Force Recon, literally getting off the bus when I got to Camp Lejeune. Basically, everyone else at that platoon, and it was just a platoon when we started, it wasn't really a, a fully-fledged company for, I think, a full year afterwards, was guys who had you know two, three combat deployments, either recon guys or recon guys and scout snipers, super experienced dudes. And I got really lucky that I got kind of thrown into the ring with them. Because they just, they needed the numbers. You know, this was a time where we had Iraq and Afghanistan going on full tilt. There was casualties and there was a lot of demand for senior guys getting pulled into MSOB, MSOC, that kind of thing. So I got the best run you could ever have in the military, which was going into an extremely senior unit as an extremely junior Marine. I was the youngest, lowest ranking guy when I got in. I was the youngest, lowest ranking guy when I got out. And the time in between is pretty good. So that was my that was my military experience. Can you tell me what MSOV stands? MSOV is that what you're referencing, right? There's MSOC and then there's MSOB. So Marine Special Operations Battalion. That was I'm not going to get the exact years right. I don't want someone who's in the unit to like tear my ears off. But comment down below. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know the Marine Corps historically has been very anti special forces, right, and very kind of like anti special. Force Recon had historically been the Marine Corps equivalent of the Special Forces. When the Special Forces were stood up by Kennedy, it was Marine Force Recon primarily, and then UDTs, which became SEALs, secondarily. And the Marine Corps took a path of not wanting to centralize with Special Forces, and the rest of the Armed Forces went through went for like SOCOM centralization mm-hmm. and um, a kind of an independent structure from their own from their own branch. And I think most people would say that the Marine Corps really suffered from that. So 2000, let's see, like 2001, 2002, 2003, you had Debt One, which is essentially Force Recon, was the Marine Corps' direct action and reconnaissance, deep reconnaissance asset. They were functioning as like true special forces, right? And getting tasked out, but Marine Corps was like really missing out on the action because they weren't part of SOCOM. Mm-hmm. As I remember it, Debt One winds up getting dissolved, and basically a lot of those guys get pulled into other branches of the special forces agencies, things like that, right? And Force Recon really never comes back in 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 full strength. The Marine Corps eventually 
kind of throws in the towel and says, we want to be part of the special forces and they stand up mm-hmm. MSOB and MSOC, right? Which becomes a streamlined special forces that's part of and answerable to SOCOM. So now they're attached to a SOCOM mothership, right. even though they're MARSOC, they still can get the support they right. need through SOCOM, right? They probably want that. Well, so, All, any asset from SOCOM. Right, and as I understand it, like, you know, their, their support was much better, right? But also their tasking was wider. So mm-hmm. in the past, one of the reasons the Marine Corps never wanted to go for special forces was they didn't want their best men being pulled away from the Marine Corps, right? Answering to Army, Air Force, even like larger scale national needs. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the trade-off with going into SOCOM. So that was kind of like the change of roles that occurred. And I got I got very lucky in landing in this weird transitory period where Force Recon was getting st- stood back up and wasn't really redefined yet. And then MSOB was like, more or less like getting its feet and kind of like already operating. By the time I was on my first deployment in Afghanistan, those guys had already been on the ground there doing their thing exceptionally well for a very long time. Now, are you as hardcore as uh, donning face paint when you would go on your mission? <laughs> I think different, you know, different, different teams had like different debates about that. Uh-huh. We took camouflage uh-huh. you don't wanna- very, very seriously. I think like the reconnaissance role if you're really into it, you have to be extremely humble about it. And these illusions that like six or seven guys are going to hold off several hundred yeah. is that's a worst case scenario that you do everything within your power to mitigate and avoid. So we took camouflage like very, very seriously. Everyone would like cami up before missions. Some people would take this like more seriously than others. You know, all of our personal equipment mm-hmm. is going to be like camouflaged. Guys would like really pay attention to like what they were eating, like dipping, smoking, like days and weeks prior before a mission, just to try to camouflage the way we smelled from locals, right? Mm-hmm. So it was taken Yeah. That part was taken like really, really seriously from lessons learned and you know, now going back into like dog history, you understand where these lessons started. And in Afghanistan I deployed twice there with Force Recon. You saw that a lot of the, almost all these lessons are still valid and we had opportunities to kind of improve on these things, right? Like the smell thing, that might not have been a, that was something that was relevant in Vietnam, right? Because the right. North Vietnamese would use dog teams to track teams occasionally, right? We never had that in Afghanistan in terms of dogs, but what we did have a huge problem with was shepherds. And it was our theory that like, you know, goats, sheep, whatever, like they're just kind of you know, grazing around or whatever, but if they smell something weird, (laughs) they're going to migrate towards it. Right. Especially if it, you know, sounds like it smells like American laundry detergent and food. So, um, yeah, a little history lesson there. The reason why I bring that up is because you have some style. I want to just mention your Instagram is Uh, cool with your thousand yard style. You know, it's a blue check Mark for those of you that really need to know, right. It's legit. And it's got a lot of cool, uh, photography and, uh, Robert's also a, a fashion designer from his experience in the military. He's just brought to him a he's he's brought to his unique style to his bags. Those sea bags that you make that you've invested your energy into that have like the ability to put like a sleeping bag or a mat on the bottom yep. of it when you want to tote it and you know how you have it to blend in. That's why I brought up your camouflage on your face because you're basically doing that with that bag. You got all these guys out there that are like we're this gray man. Right. <laughs> okay. And I can still spot that. Right. I'm like, I just, I'm going to wear camouflage, bro. But honestly, you're going to like places where it's not friendly towards you. Sometimes you just, I believe got back from Ukraine. Yep. 
right? You've been over there for a minute doing some, yeah, and you got to blend in. Did you have to blend in? That's why I was wondering, you know, you got to just kind of like. I mean, I think the, you know, the idea of camouflage is as important as it is like misunderstood, right? It's interesting for me that I've ended up in other careers post-military where camouflage was still still relevant and still important. Um, right. I spend about like half the year now working as a, as like a photojournalist. And, you know, to your point about the whole sort of gray man thing, the gray man doctrine was kind of what we were taught going through the schoolhouse and was really like kind of beaten into us in the reconnaissance community. This idea that, you know, don't be first, don't be last, don't ever let them know your name, right? Like to blend in, to be a part of the crowd, not to stick out not to kind of like profile yourself, but that in and of itself has become mm-hmm. a uniform that anyone who is in that arena, be it, you know, military or intelligence can pick up on instantly. Right. So now it's not really, um, that's not really effective camouflage anymore. It's not really gray. Yeah. But to your question, since my military experience, you know, I spent time a considerable amount of time in Afghanistan, even more time in Ukraine, a little bit in Iraq, a lot of time just like in kind of places that were a little bit tense overseas hostile some hostile some not like lebanon's yeah. lebanon's a good example right like i went to lebanon in i think 2016 with a, a wonderful french woman i was dating at the time and um for her it was very much a vacation and for me i'm like this is hezbollah territory yep and you you come to understand the world is made up a lot of these places where like little neighborhood borders can go from a place where everything is kind of normal and tactile and understood to you to being extremely foreign and potentially dangerous. But camouflage being a part of that, like as a journalist or, you know, whatever, traveling abroad, you have to pay attention and kind of like do what you can to mitigate your signature and kind of communicate as little as possible to, you know, the people around you, right? Information is is always very easily weaponized. And there's a flip side to that too, which is like the more that you pay attention to culture and the way people dress, it's also easier for you to understand the people around you, right? You know, I remember seeing you at SHOT Show with like the non boots and the tiger stripe pants, right? And like, obviously in SHOT Show, that's not the craziest thing, right? But to me, I was like, right away, I was like, oh, like, this guy's got some Vietnam vibes, right? Like, I can go up to him and we can talk about, you know, X, Y, and Z. Oh, yeah, and we did. (laughs) And everywhere else I've been in the world some kind of that like local specialized knowledge has paid off so many times in Ukraine because like I'm a little bit <laughs> I'm a little bit of a gear queer right like I know all the I'm not like as into it as I used to be but like I can talk about the different tactical brands and I can recognize them right sort of like oh, yeah. a little bit of tuned lingo that makes it really easy to talk to like the higher tier and like younger Ukrainian soldiers that are out there the older set of guys who are kind of from the very Soviet style military, right? Like guys whose career started before the Maidan revolution. They're not really like, they're part of a different system. The younger guys, like you can see them with their, their cry stuff or Roman stuff, right? And you can go to them and talk to them about it. Right. And that establishes like a level of trust that like they understand that you understand. And maybe they're a little bit less suspicious of you being a journalist who's there to like throw them underneath the bus. Right. Cause like, you talk the lingo. That's an easy comparison. And like a kind of more difficult one would be like Afghanistan, huge language barrier. You're trying to kind of make rapport with people who are totally from a different culture and don't have a shared language. But even with that, like there's a kind of 
universal respect for style, right? And it is like, it's not yep. language based. Like you don't need to have any shared language to be able to communicate that like, oh dude, like you've got style, right? Like I like your glasses. Yeah, exactly. And like, and <laughs> yeah, like, yeah so dude, you're like, oh, your glasses, those are cool. Yeah, and like, yeah. you know, I spent a little, little time there and you kind of come to understand that before the Taliban took over the country, right? Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was a Mujahideen leader, right? Was sort of the style icon of everyone who was not in support of the Taliban, right? And if you could like look at him, you'd see it reflected in the way like military guys dressed, older guys have been Mujahideen. And if you started to kind of like emulate that a little bit, you know, like look at the way this guy's dressed, look at the colors he wore, right? Look at the way he like wore his peckle hat and his field jacket. And you can kind of do that thing yeah. yourself. People would sort of intuitively pick up that like, okay, this guy knows his history a little bit. He knows what's going on culturally a little bit, right? And you're just kind of, you're going to have more familiar and friendly ground with someone automatically. Oh, yeah. The Pakul hat is a Pakul story, bro. It's a pretty Pakul hat you got there, bro. I love it, dude. I love it. And it's got also multiple, like you could put grain in it to feed the the horses and it could be like a carrier and it also can roll up and go onto their head. Oh, yeah. You know, there's just multiple purpose. Yeah. And if you go over that, if you knew that, that would probably go, oh. Well, and the, you know, this? if you understand the history of it, right, and you go to the different regions where it's more or less predominant, right, you can read so much into that. So the Peckle Hut originally came in like the 13th century, and it was brought by the Greeks. Wow. So this is this is wow. what Alexander the Great's men were like wearing. It wasn't even Greek. It was Italian, right? They mm. pretty sure came sense. from Florence, right? And if you go to Florence and you see like their kind of historical reenactment today, you can see a similar thing just done in a slightly different way. And uh-huh. when this hat arrived in Afghanistan, it was really only in a province called Nuristan. Nuristan is super remote. It's known for being like wild and inconquerable. They only converted to Islam about 110 years ago. And it is tangentially directly next to Panjashir. Right. So it makes sense since Panjashir was kind of a, uh, concentration of the Mujahideen, right? And Nuristan would be their kind of rat line corridor to Pakistan for arms or X, Y, and Z that the Panjashiris would start wearing the Pekul hat, right? Mm-hmm. As such, the Pekul hat became a symbol, but of like the normal alliance of the anti-Taliban yes. resistance in the country. So up until the, you know, democratic government came to being, the Pekul hat was worn by like very few people it was a very kind of, uh, it, was, it was very limited to those kinds of districts, right? And it was like very political. And with the democratic government and their kind of 20-year existence, right, it became more and more popular. More provinces start putting their spin on it, right? And it stays that way until the Taliban takes over the country, right? And the interesting thing is the Taliban were very controlling over what people wear, obviously. They didn't ban the peckle hat, but they wear a very specific style. So like they put their spin on it rather than. So the way it's rolled so tight on the top of their head. And then there's like. And it cuts off the circulation of your like, brain. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like it's super tight rolled. It's almost it's, like a, a No, beret. that's, that is much more of like. Northern. Style, right. Uh-huh, that's more uh-huh. like the Mujahideen style. What the Taliban guys that I've photographed and saw and met, like what they wear is larger. It's like almost like Rastafarian. Like it's larger poofier huh. they have like more hair i guess i don't know it's just like it's like a larger like bigger <laughs> thing right and some of these yeah. guys put their like shadada pins on there 
but it's like a much larger, bigger thing. And it has a I kind think of I've like seen that. embroidery on the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a totally different thing, but it, that's something that you didn't really see in the past that you see now. And for me, that's one of the reasons that like fashion is an interesting way to analyze conflicts, like the cultural aspect of conflict, right? It's easier for us to be like, oh, ERDL is like super sick and I love Tiger Stripe, but the psychology behind those decisions mm -hmm. and how they come into prominence, right? That to me is like fascinating. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Right, like, where did Tiger Stripe, why was it even created? Why was the South Vietnamese advisors wearing it? Why did the U.S. Right. start to adopt well, it? Well, how did and, he go, you know, and, and run with it? How did it, it become, like, a punk rock staple, right? That wasn't just, right. like, it was... Well, because the 70s, whatever, the 60s, but, the 70s, surplus. Right. Yeah, th surplus. It was, well, it was surplus, but it was also Joe Strummer, right? So, like, I, I couldn't tell you yeah. which one became, which one came first, right? But, like, punk guys are all wearing surplus, right? And they love, like... They love uh, subverting boots. uniforms and things like that. But Joe Strummer mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. obsessed with Vietnam, right? And he's obsessed with Vietnam photographers. He wrote, you know, he wrote at least one song about Sean Flynn. And it was something he researched quite a lot. And I think like became part of his psychology. So like, I don't know if he started wearing stuff because mm -hmm. it was available. And then that made him research things. Or if he was like researching things and then he got into the uniforms. I don't know. But the psychology of that is crazy, right? Like we go from something that is very much a part of like the state uniform doing things that are, you know, borderline illegal and deniable in other countries, right? To what punk rockers are making iconic on stages right. around the world. It's 
and Joel Strummer, he's the Clash and Big Audio Dynamite, right? For those of us that are listening that may not yeah. know. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But for, I mean, we could just, just say, just the, we could just say the Clash, right? The Clash. Yeah. yeah. Well, I had to say Big Audio Dynamite. Yeah. I had yeah. to give him yeah. his credit. To yeah. I had that cassette. Bro. <laughs> you know, when you say that, it's just like, yeah, I, I, again, you know, the whole thing about Tiger Stripe having gold or having different types of green, you know, and just like, all these different, I love tiger stripe. I love tiger, like the orange and black yeah. stripes. Yeah. Well, and that, even well, that, alone, like, like all the subdued versions, this is a, you know, this is a, it's an imitation of nature, right. That came from How to, yes this specific place that we were thinking about. Right. And, you know, most tiger stripe was made in, well, quite a lot of it was like made in Japan. Right. And that was because of their post-war economy. It's like all these things are tied together and it's a single thread that you can kind of pick up and really, mm-hmm trace the social and cultural influence on a lot of different sides of any, you know, of any conflict. So I think that's, to me, like, that's something my mind is preoccupied with way too much, probably. It's very hard for me, six foot five, 280, to find <laughs> oh, Vietnam gear that fits me, bro. Where's that big Marine that was swinging oh, around dude. a tree? Where's he at? I need his used gear. Unfortunately, I don't, think he, I don't I, think he lasted very long, right? No. No, no, he just swung that tree a few times. Big They're green, probably like, oh, you, know, you, uh, just, you big high-profile guy, we're going to have you carry the radio and the machine gun. Yeah, exactly, right? Back. And go in the tunnel. <laughs> You're going in the tunnel, Rad. Get in there. Take a flashlight. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm a big boy. It's good for me because like, I'm on the smaller side, so basically everything fits me. But there is that surplus economy, and it does tend to be that like American dudes are always like, really big and like bulked out right and like the locals are not so much the two trips i did as a journalist to afghanistan which is 20 awesome well, i should say photojournalist or photographer in 2021 and the end of 2022 i actually went through kabul and a couple other places looking for military vintage just because i'm interested yeah, in it and i want right. to see like what you know what is this shaking out as they got some acus in their thrift so, store like tons of tons of acus also interesting that you mm-hmm. would see, like, there were so many nations involved with ISAF. You were seeing, you know, Flectarn, Flectarn, ACUs, Marine stuff, tons of British stuff, French stuff, DPM, Greek and Australian <laughs> stuff. And it's mm-hmm. all just kind of, it's all just kind of there. And like, you could kind of tell a lot of the stuff had been left behind or traded or given away or stolen or like, who knows? But I'd frequently find blouses that were like larges or XLs, right? And had been extremely tailored to become like a size small. And it was mm-hmm. kind of interesting because like, you know, that like it tends to be the special forces guys, right? Who are working with indigenous forces as like force multipliers, right? These dudes, like mm-hmm. they're all cycled out. They're in great shape, right? They're really at like the top. All these dudes are like heavyweights and fucking peak performers. hundred percent. Right? Yeah. And then the local guys, like, you know, they're Afghans. They weigh like 115, 120 pounds, right? Yeah. So you could see kind of this whole, here's this like very worn out special forces uniform and it's obviously been tailored down like two or three sizes smaller than it was meant to be. I'm like, what was the story there, right? Like, was mm-hmm. this, did this come from, you know, one of the team leaders who had really like one admiration and respect with the platoon or company that he was training up and he like left uniforms right. behind for them and they continued to wear that. Right. And then now it's been, you know, cast off because these guys are in hiding that's highly imaginative narrative, but going through these piles of old clothes. I would imagine Iraq has a very big thrift store too, right? When, uh, you know, we went over there and said that the Bath Party were a terrorist organization and the military was fired. They dropped their uniforms and took their guns. Yeah. 
They got a pink slip. Yeah. Here's your uniform. They took off all their yeah. gear and said, okay, yeah. fine. Keep my AK yeah. though. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, where's all that gear you know i've got an iraqi helmet at my store and i'm like this is what they put on their head for protection oh, yeah. in their mind it's just like you from pot. it's like yeah it's almost like yellow uh like a yellow faded it's like the color of my mug right here this yellow and it's, it's just like fiberglass. it sits domed on top of my yeah. man yeah it's like fiberglass thank you that's yeah. the word yes yes yeah some of because some of the old uh what else is like that Old airborne helmet liners from World War II and a little bit after were like mm. that. They had their steel helmets and then they had like fiberglass helmet liners on the inside that was like to reduce concussions. That yeah. on the head from the metal. But it yeah. is kind of that's basically yeah. yeah. It's pretty crazy to see like what happens when you have a a very, very modern proven military encounter something that has not, you know, a military force that has not not really been in a in a in a conflict or been able to modernize in a long time. Mm-hmm. There was quite a lot of that in like the first trip I did to Ukraine during the renewed invasion. Um, I was there for like three months, kind of the the onset of the invasion. And you were looking around and like really seeing, okay, what does it look like when a a society suddenly has a suddenly has basically an unrestricted war sprung upon it, and you're having to see you're seeing you know like a vast majority of the population arm themselves and dig in and prepare defenses when they have no real comprehension of this and no real military experience. And then on the side of the guys who've been in the military already for a while and do have experience, they mostly have like a kind of inherited Soviet way of doing things, be it equipment and tactics. And that's really, it re- I mean, it really made me appreciate like the training I got in the Marines, the equipment we had, because some of it was just like shocking. I was seeing, you know, guys train on weapon systems that, were from like 1926 right yeah. like top drum loaded i don't remember the designator for this weapon like, let's be clear the guys training on it are like an old boy band that's now turned combat unit because their life where they are in theater and singing on records has been uprooted in ukraine yeah. and now they're going from the stage to the trenches training on some 1930s device to try to defend their right to sing. Yeah. Well, this is, these guys, ha- I, wa- I was watching those yeah. guys do that. No, and this is, that's actually, that's really accurate. You had, and this was like the first, you know, two weeks of the war, especially like, you mm-hmm. had really old guys who were like in their 50s or 60s and had had some kind of, you know, been conscripted at some point, right? Training yeah. really, really, really young people, you know, 18, 19, 20, whose, you know, comprehension of, of conflict was like playing Call of Duty probably and trying to train sure. them like, so in two or three days, they could be dug in somewhere, you know, hopefully establishing like a base of fire. And that was pretty, that was pretty well, because on one hand, you have like the guys with experience have experience from another war, another time. And you're also seeing that same, the, the same mindset and strategy and training absolutely fail the Russians in modern conflict. So you're like, oh, this doesn't really, doesn't work out so well. And the other side, you're mm-hmm. seeing, you know, kids very, very young people who are enthusiastic and upbeat, but don't really know what they're getting into and don't have any prior experience, right? That was pretty eye-opening. And I think it was one of those things where I took a few steps back and it was like, you know, for all the complaints I had in the Marine Corps, we actually had it. We had it pretty good. <laughs> we we're very well-trained, very well-equipped. We just needed a little bit of perspective. Are you saying thank you, drill sergeant? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, also like just, you know, you know? The, American, the American taxpayer, right? Like, if you look yeah. at the amount of logistical support 
anyone on the ground got in Afghanistan or Iraq, it's really impressive, right? Like the amount of aircraft you had on call overhead, the hundreds of hours of training you had, the research that went into all the equipment you had, you know, your units in parallel that could come in a moment's aid, you were almost always under some kind of supporting fire versus what Ukraine looks like now. A totally different thing. Totally different thing. Yeah, you were there for how many months from like, so February 24th of 2022 is the day of infamy for that situation is how I look at it. It's a very, I feel that day's powerful like 9-11 was and we have not fully grasped that as a world yet where we've lost so many lives due to that invasion and the atrocities that are happening in Ukraine from February's unprovoked attack is no different than the way that we felt on 9-11, we should have that same vibe to, I don't know, that's just me. You know, one of the interesting things has been that first trip, which was, I was there, I think, March 3rd, I got there. Mm-hmm. there for a little bit over three months, that first trip. Um, and to be honest, I didn't know a lot about Ukraine or Ukrainians prior to that trip. I'd been there once for a fashion week in 2017, I think. But I hadn't really learned anything on that trip. I was just doing a job and that was it. That was normal, right? Normal day, tea, coffee. Normal. And it was in the middle of winter. And I just like, you know, you were just kind of filing your stories and and getting on with it. But talking to Ukrainians, like, I kind of expected this post 9 11 feeling, uh, like the way America was, where everyone got super patriotic and were really resolved against, you know, an enemy. And like, Mm -hmm. a lot of that was there. The country was extremely resolved, extremely patriotic. People were actually in very, very high spirits, even though they were facing, you know, an, an imminent ongoing invasion. Mm-hmm. But the difference was you didn't really feel like there was a deep-seated animosity against Russians as a whole, right? People constantly told me in those first three months, they're like, you know, I would say like, oh, like, you know, where does this war end for you? Do you guys, do you guys go to the Karch Bridge? Do you guys go across Crimea? Do you go to all the border of Russia? Do you go to Moscow? Right, like trying to find out how this plays out in people's heads, and they'd say like, "No, we we want all of Ukraine back and free, but the Russians until the twenty fourth were our brothers, and we we welcomed them into Ukraine. You know, we have a lot of shared history. There wasn't this deep seated hatred against Russians, even as the even as the war progressed, which really kind of mm-hmm. that surprised me, and that was a difference." Another difference would be like, yes, this is very much a 9-11 event where like the ripples are going to be felt for generations across history. But the difference is what if 9-11 was carried out by Canada? It's much Mm. more like it would be much more immediate, right? Immediate and kind of like Mm -hmm. ongoing. There's a little bit of a difference there. Um, That was my first sort of three months. I think it was a little bit over three months in Ukraine. I went back for December to do a Christmas embed this past Christmas. And then I went back again in, it was May, May and a little bit. Of 2023? Just recently. Yeah. Uh, Did that. It looked like the offensive was kicking off then. So I went back and and worked on another story and I will probably go back here in a few weeks. I'd like to be back there a little bit before September um, because now the, now the counteroffensive really is in full swing and I would like to be able to, tell some of those stories. Yeah. You know, how do you feel about them trying to telegraph that counteroffensive or any offensive from, you know, everybody's trying to like say today's the right. day. I mean, I got to say like that, you know, it worked because it, I, I say it worked because I totally miscalculated when it was going to happen. One of the things that I really come to admire about the Ukrainians, especially in opposition to the Russians is they are 
exceptionally applied and really, really intelligent and like crafty. Mm -hmm. They, I guess we're at a good point in the war if we have to remind people of this, but like they are the underdogs. They're outnumbered and outgunned in all ways. And what they've really leaned into is this kind of Ukrainian like entrepreneurial spirit and this craftiness. So anything that comes out of the Ukrainian government and all of the military actions are like very highly orchestrated and kind of thought out. I couldn't, I honestly couldn't tell you or even offer you an opinion whether this offensive was meant to be a small, piecemeal, very kind of mm-hmm. orchestrated and fin- offensive, uh-huh. right? And the idea that this was going to be like a massive blitz that occurred in spring, because they kept calling it the spring offensive, the spring offensive, the spring offensive, right? I couldn't tell you whether that was tactics that were there deliberately to distract and disinform or just sort of how things have played out. I do know that the Ukrainians are, they place a high premium on human life and they will not commit to tactics where they're losing tons and tons of guys every single day. They can't afford it. And also I think it's a, it's a moral departure for them from the Russians. They're highly adaptable as well. So I think if the blitz thing wasn't working out, they would realize that in a day or two and, and really, you know, reconsider what they were doing. Shift. But it was my impression in May when I was there that the the groundwork for the offensive had, was not completely laid yet. It kept saying spring offensive, spring offensive, spring offensive. But looking looking at troop movements, talking to troops who were coming in and out of the east, especially and towards Zaporizhia, it did not seem like the everything had been positioned yet for that offensive. And towards the last few days I was there you could really pick up a sort of groundswell of ground movement. You were hearing about kind of troops gathering in, in, in sort of strategic places that are outside of large cities. So I, I sort of got the feeling that like the idea of a spring offensive was, mm, that was a little bit of disinformation, right? Mm-hmm. And they had to have known for at least like one month that the invasion was not going to be happening or the counteroffensive was not going to be happening any kind of any, any time in spring. But you know, that's me, my impression on the ground. I do not have like the 50,000 foot view on this. And I'm also one guy out there generally working with a fixer and nobody else. I don't have like the resources or essay of someone working at like the New York Times or the Washington Post. No, you're just, uh, you're in it and you're doing it. And it's a passion that you hold within you to do these stories. And, and you know, your, your travels have created you to what i mean like when did you when you fell in love with camouflage to be this designer you you are in love i fell in love with camouflage at a very young age probably like four yeah oh wow <laughs> yeah I, you're I still think, learning colors i had a little jacket point. yeah oh yeah yeah i had a jacket and my dad gave me like a good conduct ribbon on it and it was camouflage and i started to earn little rad awards around the house oh, and my dad it. would you know hey here's a yeah, here you go, Aaron. You know, here's your jump wings. I jump off picnic tables with them and stuff as they get ready and uh, always want to go in their rucksacks. So I'd say around four or five is when camouflage became my favorite color. Yeah. Uh, that's a, I mean, that's a yeah. great, and here that's you a are great sound bite right there. <laughs> it's, you know, that's interesting because like I didn't, I didn't come from a military family at all. My parents were horrified I joined the military. I had one grandfather who's in the Navy in World War II, just like basically everyone else. Didn't grow up really liking camouflage. I, you know, I was interested in the military a little bit, but I didn't really play video games or any of this other stuff. 
getting out of the military, I was also not interested in camouflage because I was like, I just came from that. And like, I thought multi-cam was cool. I really thought <laughs> multi-cam was cool because I'd had to fight really hard to get that kit for our unit. So I was like personally attached to it. But the rest of it, like I gave away, you know, all of my deserts and all my winter green. Marpat. I gave all, all stuff away. And now, like, years later, I'm like, man, I, I really wish I would have kept that stuff. But uh, I wasn't really interested. Yeah, because they had the Eagle Globe and Anchor embedded yeah, inside of the Yeah, and this is, you know, this is stuff I'd worn, I'd yeah. worn for years. And it was, like, all nice and broken in. And anyway. And recon touched as well. So there's a little bit of that, yeah, well, right? Was, I mean, there is some baseball you know, cards. all of our uniforms. You know. And, yeah, it was, it was cool. Yeah. Some paracord here, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, like, a lot of, like... You know, like sewing down, sewing down pockets and stuff like that. You know, Velcro instead of Velcro instead of buttons because buttons, buttons can fall off, right? Well, you don't want to iron buttons over your uniform anyways, and like have those button yeah. marks. Well, and you, you know, could you do like so. Snipers were like really big on debating whether you wanted Velcro because then your buttons wouldn't fall off. It makes a noise. I borrowed from the British, and what I did was I took their buttons. I sometimes I would take like a hot metal and kind of knock out the knock out the holes in our buttons. And just sew them with 550 cord because it was stronger, right? But in, I went into studying fashion design after I got out of the military. I knew I wanted to go into something with art. I loved drawing. I was really interested in just doing something creative. When I'm going into fashion design, I studied that for two years in California at Otis College of Art and Design. I got more into the menswear and tailoring side of things, for which I moved to London about a year and a half. And I studied bespoke tailoring, which is like making suits. Oh, wow. Specific to one client and you're making it by hand. You know, it's hundreds of hours of labor per suit and it takes, uh, if I'm honest, probably longer than a year and a half to learn how to do properly. You're going down with chalk lines. You're like taking that and like marking it on. Oh, exactly. So you, you know, you, a customer customer comes in, you take like 20 different measurements of them. You also look at like, like, how do they stand, right? How do they stand? You know, what do they do for a living? How are they spending their days, right? How are they commuting? You look at, you know, their figuration, right? They have wide said feet. Do they have like a sort of hunched back or a dropped shoulder? Soldiers would typically have a very dropped shoulder because they've been carrying a rifle for such a long time, right? Let's sit up straight. (laughs) You and me, you and me both. (laughs) And then, you know, you make by hand a pattern for them. You cut out basically a rough draft of the garment. That takes probably 30 hours. You put the garment on them. Then you completely disassemble the garment, make, make the corrections, make the first version of the finished garment, make additional corrections and another fitting. And then you make kind of the final thing that's about 90% of the way there. And then you do another fitting generally, and then you finish out the garment. I love All it. in, you're talking about an excess of 300 hours on a single garment, right? So I did that for a year and a half, came back. I switched into industrial design, did kind of my final years of, of university in that. And then I got into design and it wasn't until... Even a little bit after that, that I started to get interested in camouflage. It wasn't something I wore or was really interested in when I was in fashion because I was very, I was working for, you know, GQ magazine for a few years, British GQ. I kind of wanted to get away from the military and sort of see what my life and personality would be like without that. Mm-hmm. That was part of it. I also felt like in a lot of settings, camouflage is not camouflage, right? If you're wearing camouflage in a foreign country, that puts you on, you know, like a certain kind of radar and you don't know exactly what that is or what that interaction might be. America has a super positive, you know, relationship with our military. Almost every other country on earth does not, 
right? A lot of them have like an outright negative. Form. Yeah, it's illegal to wear it in Bermuda. It's illegal to wear it. It's illegal to wear camouflage it's in Bermuda. It's illegal to wear it in Bermuda. It's also illegal to wear it in many parts of India because they have a history of they have a, a history of armed revolution there, right? The same thing, you know, in South America, right? Like it has distinct ongoing connotations of, of armed conflict, right? So it's going to get you a lot of local attention you don't want. It's also going to get you maybe attention from the authorities that you don't want. I've gotten kind of taken down in Eastern, Eastern India before for like wearing kind of not even camouflage stuff, just sort of like safari colors. Right. That's what I, I was going to ask that. Yeah. To sort of, you know, talk my way out of, but the history of camouflage kind of grew on me like a little bit more and more. I became kind of nostalgic for it a little bit and mostly just started popping up in the, in the periphery. Right. So I remember Rhodesian brushstroke was a thing probably like five years ago. I love it. It was a big thing. And I remember like, Mm -hmm. Oh, like I've seen this before, but where, and I was like, Oh, was it when I was in Djibouti or like hanging out around Somalia? I was like, is that when I was seeing it? No, I had to kind of, you know, I had to like dig into the recesses of my mind. And I realized that, my unit had done a combat man tracking course with some guys who were, it was a Rhodesian, former Rhodesian operation, right? And all the trainers there had been trained by like Rhodesian guys and they were wearing some of the stuff. And that was like the first camouflage that I had like a kind of emotional connection to because I was like, this was one training cycle in the Marines that like, I just had fun. You weren't on a base you weren't being, you know, you weren't being trained by your peers. You were being trained by these guys who were kind of like, kind of granola guys, right? Yeah, it was hard because you were doing a lot of movements. You're doing a lot of movements and they were really trying to run you ragged. But it was also fun. It kind of went back to like airsofting as a kid. You're out in the forest. You've uh-huh. got your buddies. It's not so serious. It's not so controlled. You're, someone's getting hunted. Someone's hunting. It reminded me of like the movie Hunted. And it was just... It was a really good memory that I had from the military because, like, you were doing something that was cool. You were learning. It wasn't so stressful. And you were kind of, you were with all your military buddies, but you were not in this super serious demand. It wasn't so mental. Yeah, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like, you know, like pre-dive or something like that or doing like an in-doc where every single thing you do is being watched. And if you fuck up, you're on the right attitude. You just spoke over your boys. It wasn't like that. It was much more relaxed because these were civilians that were putting on the course. So I remember I found these guys actually at Shot Show who had like surplus Rhodesian brushstroke fire fire was it fire force ventures or something like that. Um, I think they've since US. And I was like, dude, I gotta get a pair of these pants. Started wearing them. That was like the first piece of camouflage I really started wearing like post military life. And it was good because like it, there was environments where it made sense. I think I did wind up wearing that to India and like camping and stuff. But there was also one interaction I had that kind of reminded me like, oh, like these things have deep personal connotations to other people and they're not always going to be positive, right? With Rhodesian brushstroke, you got to be you know really aware of that, right? I wore it going to Washington, D.C. to do a shoot for a fashion brand out there and I was waiting for a cab, taxi, Uber, whatever. And there was this older oh, yeah. guy, distinguished guy. He's like, kind of, he's like dressed, he's dressed up a little bit. And he looks down at me. He like keeps looking at my pants, and I kind of had a bad flight. And I was like, "Guy, fucking looking at my pants." Like, <laughs> I don't want to get in a fight at the airport, man. Like, you know, this like you don't like my but pants. You just tell no. me you don't like my pants. So I just kind of I, I got a little arrogant. And I was like, I was like, "So you like my pants?" You know? 
And he, he was kind of a little bit taken aback and he responded with a little bit of an accent that was a little strange. And uh, he said, you know, I, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that in about 40 years. And I said, oh, when was the last time you saw this? And he says, well, I was dropping off like 10 boys into the bush. I never saw them again. And I was like, and he got kind of choked up and I was like, whoa, what, like, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, I was, you know, I was a pilot in Rhodesia. And like when things yeah. started to go, when things started to go bad there, he basically left. He did some other things in South America. I won't ask what he was doing in Washington, D.C. I did ask him if he was still flying and he said yes. But that was one of those interactions where I was like, okay, like you do have to remember it's cool and it's interesting. And I have my personal take on this, but it also has really serious emotional connotations to other people. Right. But that emotion, sure, that emotion sure, positive sure. or negative, I think that's, and this is true of like all military clothing, right. That emotion is also kind of my interest, right? Like it could be positive, it could be negative, but because it's tied to history and it's tied to service and it's tied to sacrifice and it's tied to victory and it's tied to defeat, right? Mm -hmm. There's such a strong emotional vein there as a designer that you can mine, right? And I don't see really anything in fashion today, like capital F fashion industry, that has that strength, right? It's, right. you know, it's kind of, it's like trends and it's invented and it's like the Barbie movie and it's like, 90s Nirvana stuff or whatever. Very few of those things ring with like real nostalgia, real uh, emotional content that we camouflage does. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Yeah, no, it's crazy. I love it. I do love talking about camouflage, period. It's, uh, 
it's just fascinating because I've got a pair of uh, size 40 inch waist DPMs, oh, wow. British DPM uh, on their way over to me right now, you know, and uh, I was in my shop the other day and the same night I was looking at shorts, right? I was like, oh, oh dude. no one around here has yeah. any, you know, British DPM yeah. issued yeah. shorts. Can I find some of my size? I go walking into my airsoft shop and my buddy Xander, who you yeah, met yeah, at SHOT yeah. Show I mean, with the ski mask. Yeah. Bro, he has them on already. I'm like, <laughs> Xander, what are you wearing? And he's got like the hiking boots going yeah. on. He's got the shorts. He's got his gun on his hip. Yeah. He's all in the shop. I was like, I was just looking at those last night and you already yeah. have them. That's not fair. So we kind of have this thing going back and forth. So I got like French and Finnish pants that turn white or camouflage. Oh, those are great. I love my Finnish yeah. pants, dude. Well, Yes, the, the short yes. thing is the short thing is interesting, right? Like American, the American military, in terms of something that's been issued, has never done shorts and camouflage, right? You've got the right. Vietnam stuff that was like, you know, you can have like a mama son kind of whip you up a pair of shorts or cut your trousers into shorts, or you got Ranger panties as they call them that they run around right. and do their PT black, short you know, Your black silkies. It's like there's there's this like mythos about this thing, but it's always kind of like. Uh, on the dark side because it's never it's never been official or issued, right? I think that's why right. people are so attached to it. So you had like custom made stuff in Vietnam. You had you've got like the Ranger panties, black silkies, whatever. There's been huge internal wars within the Marine Corps about those and their regulations, right? Everyone's attracted to them. Everyone loves them. They look terrible and they terrify women, but that's fine. We love them anyway. There's the... <laughs> you got legs. If you could wear those, you're in shape. Yeah. Let's just be clear athletes dude you guys are just like running yeah. it's like you don't okay well, oh my gosh you need things that don't UDTs, constrict you right so like you <laughs> t-shirts yeah. are not comfortable they're not the you know then it's not the best range of motion you could ever have certainly no one's wearing them outside of like a training environment but guys are incredibly right. attached to those right but we've never actually been issued like duty shorts right but like the brits the australians basically every other military has some kind of version of this and I remember in Afghanistan on my first deployment there, like trading basically every excess piece of kit I had to get these British shorts. Guys would yep. cut theirs off and make them, you know, make them into shorts, right? But also they were issued with ones. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. It came in the British version of multicam, which was like all terrain. I think they call it uh, MTP, multicam training pattern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had the their MTP. version of it. It's, multicam training you know, pattern. It was yeah, so close yeah. to multicam. You could wear the two together. But they have the DPM brush strokes. Right. It has, yeah, That's it's kind of, their it multi. Has that, that brush stroke, like pixelation too. Yes. And the fabric was That's amazing. Right. And they had, like, mm-hmm. they were real, you know, cargo shorts. They had that kind of rope on the inside for tying them off. Really great. Around the waist and everything. It's perfect. Yeah, and they yes. had, like, the tab adjusters, really great shorts. I still have a couple pairs of those in my archive. But the other place that I've seen them recently, because, like, American military never happened. Guys, at least in the Marines, would make a big deal of when they EES cutting off you know, their duty trousers, right? Their field trousers into shorts. But it, like it never really, it doesn't really look good. But guys were stoked to do that because I mean, you're kind of like a free man. You could go hang out on the beach or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But I'm now seeing like the last the last trip I did to Ukraine, I did a, a story for Esquire out there. And one of the things I noticed is like these younger guys that I saw at the beginning of the war, 18, 19, you know, early 20s, we didn't really have a lot of experience some of them, quite a lot of them have gotten really into the fight and what they're doing and have become really, really self-studied, right? And like in the space of a little bit over a year now, they've really, really 
progressed, right? Like you see these younger guys, you'll see groups like uh, one of them's called Gonar. It's all young guys. They have developed their own initiative-based tactics. They train a lot. There's a lot of kind of simulation and reading from the book of like mm-hmm. American special forces and like that, the whole kind of culture that rotates around that. And these guys are all wearing cry shorts, not all of them, but quite a lot of them are wearing like the cry, like G series combat shorts. How much of it is actual sure. cry precision? How much of it is like local knockoffs? I'd probably put that at like probably 10% the real thing, 90% knockoffs. But right. these right. guys are probably the ones that bring combat shorts into the mainstream because like they're kind of they're writing their own book their conflict is being so well documented i think they're going to kind of they're going to kind of push uniforms in that you know in that direction and that was like a big shift like you know obviously it's seasonal as well because in ukraine like the winter is deadly serious cold and i've never actually been there in the summer but i know especially in the south it gets super hot right they're talking about mediterranean style you know temperatures and environments so we'll kind of see We'll see what happens with that. The Ukrainians are also not, uh, they're not so concerned. They're not really concerned at all with like uniform regulations as well. So like just color identification. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, their stuff is, they just look like a bunch of airsofters with red, right, yellow that, and blue on their what, arms. What, I'm not going to, I got there and I expected, and I love that what? because they have their gear right. probably from playing. Right. Someone was like, wait, is this for real yeah. now? Well, and I expected that <laughs> I expected that there would be less of that with time. Yeah. In the beginning of the war, there was huge problems with blue on blue and mm-hmm. um, civilians getting egressed uh, or aggressed, sorry. Early fire. Yeah, accidentally, because like there was a huge problem with um, internal espionage and spies, like Russian kind of forces that had been embedded there for a long time. But yeah, people have actually gotten kind of more marked up, not less with time. That's interesting. And like, you know, you would expect training gets better, PID gets better blue on blue should be reduced, right? Maybe that's not the case, or maybe they're just being very proactive about it. But it's also the fact that like everyone just kind of wears not whatever they want, but in a lot of units, you can kind of get away with like whatever kind of camouflage you want. Part of that is, you know, necessity. They have to outfit all of these guys and bad camouflage is still better than, well, to a degree, better than no camouflage, right? But you're still seeing guys out there with like that weird Russian orange reddish cryptek Tons of old KLMK, um, yeah, of, sure. like knockoff American camouflage. A lot of excess ACU stuff. Some interesting pieces too. Like I've seen, I've seen and found some tiger stripe out there. Oh, it's yeah, I wouldn't even. It's pretty wild, but I also I think like the irregularity of the uniforms is another reason that these guys like have to do the color coded stuff so much. Yes, because like yes, they're mixing in a, their their standard uniform as it is. That they look that different <laughs> from Russian. They're using a lot of Russian equipment as is, and then everything. Maybe their comms aren't all dialed into each other's units, and there's these scattered people who are training together from other villages, and then they only can identify with yellow and blue. And so they're like, you know, uh, are you a lost patrol? Well, yeah, we are here too. We're yellow, and you're yeah. Blue. No, they do like the oh. you know they do the World War II style you know passwords and, and colors and things like that. Yeah, and there's a good reason for it. You know, lateral like communication with lateral units is something that the ukrainians have gotten only a little bit better at with the war they're definitely better at it than russians but that's a problem and you don't because there's so many layers in military there's you know territorial defense that's guarding villages and is kind of like the that was backed up against the front line and then you've got whatever line units are responsible for that area and then you've got 
you know, kind of like random artillery and aerial reconnaissance units operating in that area. Mm-hmm. And then you might also have reconnaissance or sort of skirmishing units coming in with like very little orchestration. So that's like, that's a problem you could very easily, and I've seen this happen at least twice, very easily, like being an AO, think you know the battle space, think you know what artillery is in support of you, and then some unit rolls up and goes and hits something, and you're like, who are these fucking dudes in this, you know, passenger van? Like, what? And you just kind of kind of look, and are like, what's going on here? Yeah. Are these guys, are these guys the business? Are they our guys? Are they someone else's guys? There's also quite a lot, and I think this is on both sides of the book, there's quite a lot of action that goes across the front line that's plain clothes. So that's a whole nother, you know, that's a whole nother aspect of this. But because of that, like lack of not so great communication across units, not the best integration and situational awareness. I think the color coding thing is like, it's really important. Yeah. I, I, I yeah, I, I chuckle about it, but I understand it a hundred percent, you know, and it's, it is makes sense. But it makes the uniform that <laughs> so much easier kinda, for, for guys who airsoft, right? Well, it I'm just looking sense. at the photos from like, you know, yeah, dude, our games, it's like, well, how far off is airsoft war games versus, yeah. you know, the real death. We don't want that. We don't deal with the real death. And, and that's sad, you know, and the war's hell and you've seen it firsthand. So, well, you know, I'm not trying to. There, there is something, there is something interesting in that. Like not so much now because people are really caught up, but I was noticing the first three months of the invasion, you'd run into like younger guys who didn't seem to have a military background, but like they knew their shit. It's like yeah. the way their gear was set up, the way they were holding their weapons, the way they're manipulating their weapons was like spot on. And it was like very westernized. It was not what the older generation who had was doing. And there, there might be some things that they were a little bit unfamiliar with, like, you know, communications and artillery and stuff like that. You could see their mm-hmm. quick learners. I remember seeing one of these kids. He looked like he was like 20 at best. Very like, you know, like very baby faced. And he was with essentially like a, a regular volunteer unit. And he'd just come back from the most insane raid I've ever heard of in my life, which was him, few other guys total, they pushed about two or three kilometers into a Russian-held village, located the headquarters, dispersed on two sides of it, had you know outward and inward-facing cover, and were, and were going to uh, put grenades to the windows, right? A some kind of armored vehicle. They couldn't tell me what. With you know a twenty-five millimeter gun, opened up on them, and literally opened up on their own the Russian self-headquarters, right? Oh. They, they popped on thermals. The guys held their fire, held their grenades and bounded back out of the village, right? And made it out with zero casualties. And I just looked at this kid and I was like, A, you're insane forever doing that. Like that's like, no, an American military unit would never task someone with doing that. Secondly, you guys were incredibly disciplined because you held your fire. If they had opened up, right? If they had hit the headquarters or they had, you know, tried to put down suppressing fire and whatever this armored vehicle was, they would have gotten smoked and it would have brought every single Russian in that village out because they would have heard the counterfire, right? And known that this was mm-hmm. equal lighting something up, but something, you know, more serious an actual an actual counterattack, right? Um, especially because the armored vehicle opening up on the headquarters, I think, was probably interpreted as someone who didn't know, know how to work thermals initiating like a blue on blue. They that, that was them blue on blue themselves. Yeah. They they baited them basically to shoot the yeah, which wasn't which wasn't planned, but it like I think the whole thing just led us confusion. And when they egressed from this town, they weren't dealing with small arms fire, right? They didn't take any casualties. And they were just like, dude, they just killed themselves. Yeah, <laughs> so on the way home. I talked to this 
team. Like they just kicked their own ass. <laughs> I talked to Skinny. Was that you know he was obviously the team leader, and I was like, "So you have any military experience?" And he's like, "No, you know, like I I was doing some military studies in in college, and and, and like that's it. I was never in a unit." And I was like, no, 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 like this kid knows something. There's no way he got this trained, especially in this unit, because they were not that well trained at the time. There's like no way. And I was like, Are you airsoft? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, how many years yeah. have you been airsofting, right? And like, you know, I got his social details and like, kid has an airsoft team. He's been doing it since he's 14. And like, yep. okay, that, you know, might terrify. Then those cries are probably 25% legit. Right. <laughs> and, <'Cause- laughs> yeah, and, 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 you know, like he knew, you know, he knew the gear, he knew all this stuff. And I don't yep. know, you know, how serious he took training when he was airsofting or whatever, but even just learning from dumb mistakes airsofting, he was capable of leading a squad, carrying on a mission and doing some really, really intelligent in the moment decision making. So, you know, we might laugh when we joke about it, but I would say the same thing about video games like Call of Duty. There was tons of guys who like that was their baseline experience, but they learned how to communicate and learn how to work in a team. And that team became a real fire team. So we might laugh and joke about it, but like conflicts from this point on the baseline and like the kind of leaders of those conflicts, at least on the ground are going to be, especially outside of the U S guys who come from airsofting and video games. True. It's true. A lot of the recce kids that I met who are like aerial reconnaissance, they do drones, drone strikes. They're really good at what they do. They're like, really into kind of like hacking their drones and making them more lethal and they're really good at what they do right like they've rewritten the book on drones talk to all those kids and i'm like so like how did you you know how did you get into this right? like mm-hmm. what led to this unit and they're they all said exactly the same thing they're like i used to play arma video games call of duty whatever i knew i was good at video games i didn't think i was gonna be a good infantry guy so like i want to drone. and arma dude for sure yeah so <laughs> If you're playing Arma, your squad-based tactics, you're like, Roger that, moving out, going over. Yeah, the and they like they got you know it's, the kind it's, of it's it's a crazy thing to say, but like video games and airsoft have become like that's the baseline for the next generations of war, and it's kind of well, Robert, it's happening yeah, right yeah, now. I mean, my, my best friend yeah. that's working, Xander, who you took a photo, he just became a national guardsman yeah. today. Like just yeah. just got no, his, uh, he's going to drill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that's you know, twenty five years yeah. old. It's, uh, but his drill sergeant said, how come, you know, all about this helmet yeah. in boot camp? <laughs> he's like, Oh, you mean like, cause I have one. He's like, he's like rad. The funniest thing was when my drill sergeant was like bragging about his, his gear. And I'm thinking, Oh, his, he had Comtex. He's like, yeah, I got these $1,300 Comtex, his drill sergeant. And Xander's like, bro, I've got like two sets at home under my pillow, yeah. you know, yeah. like already yeah. these kids, these young men and women going in have been kind of disciplined a little uh left right left holding it proper yeah well and the, and you know there's there's all that there's like the language right there's also the kind of there's there's sort of like a militia mindset to it as well like ukraine very much unlike the united states access to firearms as a civilian is almost zero you really have to be in the good graces of your local like police officer which means bribery essentially mm-hmm. you have you know any kind of rifle or something like that there are very, very, very few military pattern weapons available in Ukraine. It's mostly like hunting stuff. And because there's no uh, local interest in it prior to the war, none of it was really imported. Um, pistols, like forget about it. It's like you can't have one. I think you have to be on like the Olympic shooting team and it has to be kept at a range. And it's like, it's not going to happen. But the beginning of the war... Completely strict on... Yeah, it's, it's yeah. really like, it's really strict. And most people, 
you know, most people I'll talk to, they would say like, no, I would never, I would never, like now we really wish we had American gun laws, right? But in the past, we never considered mm-hmm. it because basically it made you really, it made you really susceptible to like bribery and you would have to deal with the police all the time. It just wasn't like, it wasn't something that made sense to most people because it wasn't really a, it was very much like a waivable privilege, right? But there were these guys at the beginning of the war, and there was like one in almost every single unit who had, you know, been into video games, whatever, was really into guns, and had like gone through all the loopholes and procedures and X, Y, and Z, and like gotten the kit, and knew how to make their own ammunition, and knew how to set up weapons. And these guys wound up, you know, kitting out basically entire platoons, and also taking on training and working as like armors and setting people up. I saw quite a lot of like there was there was at every unit there was like one guy like that and it really like it really made a difference because on the other side of that 100 percent, you were going around these villages and you were seeing kids you know some old enough to join some not going from like post to post trying to join and talking to the territory defense guys and being like can we fight can we fight like can you give us a rifle can we do something and there just wasn't enough resources to go around and even i think more important than the lack of the lack of arms that can be distributed. And, you know, anyone in the experience knows this. The more important thing than the weapon is the training. It's not a good thing to hand out tons of weapons to people who don't know what they're doing, right? And Ukraine was pretty restricted with that. But the weapons you do have, if those are in the hands of people who don't know how to utilize them, right? Don't know how to maintain them. Don't know how to effectively employ them. Don't know how they function, you know, tactically on like a platoon level or something like that. You're not really doing yourself any favors. So... There's, there's some lessons to be learned, not just in like the next generation kind of writing on, you know, airsoft and video games, but also the value of having a few guys who have like real wood and steel skills, right? Some talent. Yep. Yeah. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. And if you're my listener and you're listening and you're thinking about joining the military in the U.S. or wherever, give it a shot. You know, we can look, we're looking for good, talented individuals to take the slots, to, to hold down the fort and to keep America under its freedom flag that we live under. So I'm not paid by any major army company or anybody like that to just, say this. Just I'm mention just Rad if you get recruited. No reason. Yeah, get yeah, just Your mention Rad. Just mention Airsoft. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, no. In fact, at Airsoft Games, I just want to be yeah. clear. I have a strict policy of no recruiting allowed. So if a recruiter wants to like dive in and come in and get to my games, it's like, you can't unless you're fighting alongside that individual, come out and play, come out and get into the trenches and let them rub your shoulder. And then they'll be like, wow, you're in the army, dude, or you're in the Marine Corps, dude. Be like, yeah, talk to me about it later. Right now, let's go get the satellite that's down. You know, if you can move forward, it's going to work out in your best interest. Other than like sign this card, give me your phone number. Sign this card. Maybe you also get whooped by these kids. Like, yeah, I did a little bit of airsoft when I was a kid, and then during lockdown, I cloned uh, my rifles and pistols that I have at home in gas blowback airsoft, and as much metal as oh, possible, because I was like, ranges are shut. I want to be training every single day again. Yep. I got the time. Like, let's do it. A, I was blown away. Like, the weapons and everything have gotten so much better. B, it was like just super fun to be able to like set up the range in five minutes and be shooting every day. But eventually, when I was getting ready to go back to Afghanistan, I went and did a couple of games. Just because I was like, you know what? I want to get used to kind of like being in a kinetic environment again and like loud noises and stuff. Like I just kind of want to jumpstart things. And like, you know, I had made some clothing to go out there and stuff. And I'm like, I really want to test this and see if this stuff works, right? Man, I got spanked. <laughs> I went in there and I was like, I'm a Force Recon badass. I've done CQB for X, Y, and Z hours. Like, sure, sure, sure. I just smoke all these kids. Sorry, boys. No, I got spanked, dude. <laughs> I got, dude, I got, I got this young man named so Mason. Hard. He's 11. He's a killer in the arena, yeah. dude. He has got it. He is so fast. Yeah. Uh, you would never suspect him. He's that kid that would be walking along with the basket yeah. in Ukraine. He's 11, yeah. and he's going to take you out, yeah. bro. These kids are, like you said, give him five more years yeah. of doing what he's doing right now. When he steps inside of a CQB house at some military, they're going to be like, how do you know all of this? Yeah. Well, and I, I think, you know, my experience of that, because like I, I was shooting for months, just airsoft gas stuff off of my porch. And then I things kind of opened up a little bit and went to the actual range. And I was like, my groups and shooting with a rifle was actually like, was probably the best it had been in a decade. Mm-hmm. My work with the pistol was garbage. My transitions were fine. That was all good. But man, that the, the, the kick on an actual 45 versus an airsoft. Your airsoft yeah. blowback is totally different. Uh, but it was it was legitimate. Like my rifle work got better. You get you know you're practicing your footwork and your manipulations, and all well, that stuff. Nothing gets rid of the smell and the fire and the loudness of that. You know what I mean? There's nothing ever going to replace the yeah. the death you're wielding out of a barrel of a real gun. Yeah, okay? that, that boom, that recoil. Yeah. Correct, and you're a little desensitized, just a little bit. Well, yeah, you're you know you're <laughs> that's kind of why I went into these games because like I don't want to. I want to get past that, that 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 moment of initial shock. If I'm going to Afghanistan again and something does happen and I'm going to an environment where like, hey, there's a couple car bombings every day and there's just shootings in the street sometimes. I don't want to uh I don't want to have like a hiccup, right? 
like well, you gotta going react. to these games a little bit and getting getting back to the mindset of like okay we're not freezing we're reacting to things and yeah like yeah there might be loud noises and stuff that really helps and it was also this sounds really strange but it was a really great way to take out gear and equipment so i made some like my versions of kind of local afghan clothing to go back and it was good to like throw that on and throw on some other things i've designed mm-hmm. and like 12 hours of gaming it and being like, Oh yeah, like this, you know, this isn't comfortable or this snags here or like this doesn't actually, exactly. This doesn't integrate the way exactly. I thought it did. Right. And that saved me like so many pain points when I was actually, you know, out doing the job. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. You, I mean, trial and error happens all the time in airsoft. Uh, you know, you get to redo it and like walk the same steps or walk a different step and try it again a different right. way. Whereas the other, the other way got you shot. In the real world, you get shot, you're done most of the time. Yeah. In Airsoft, it gives you a chance to go back, regroup your brain, suck up your pride, and go back at it again yeah. and again, just like in a gym, like in a boxing ring, you know. Yeah. But that fighter coming at you is looking to throw blows, so you got to be ready. Well, and this, I think <laughs> one of the most valuable aspects of that um, was it's so different working against an actual adversary than steel. You know what I mean? Steel yeah. or paper targets, like whatever you're shooting – What's it doing? At yeah, you? just yeah. like like wow, this this person is like moving, thinking. You know what I mean? And you're doing the same. But you're calling out targets at one o'clock, moving up a hill, three hundred feet away, and you got another target out at the left, and you're like, hey, he's out to the west, six hundred feet out. You know, and you got multiple targets, and you're getting engaged. You're just calling yeah, out all of these it different. Just, it makes it, it in that way. I think it makes it more realistic than some of the live fire stuff you do in the military because you're what I've seen in real life. Like, no one is ever firing from a traditional firing position, right? Things are always at, like, the extreme limit. More often than not, the extreme limit of engagement. Things are not happening in, like, a clean, flat, squad bay style environment. There's always ambiguities, right? Uh, your, you know, your squad or team or whatever that's moving, like, it's rare that they're going to be in the perfect formation that you've planned because of training that's going right. to be. And Airsoft, for all the things about it, they can't be made realistic all of those factors are pretty accurately represented, right? So like there's, I think there's some real, I think there's some real value in there. And I wouldn't, I think my team's communication skills are top notch. You know, all my guys and gals on the team, there's about 20 of them. They all got radios and we can all just break down into squad based elements and move off into the grid. And they can use their hand to identify mountains and valleys and saddles and, you know, oh, wow. just the littlest simple. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's all just airsoft because what are we doing? We're out in the mountains. We're out in the saddles. We're out in the valleys. We're fighting hilltop to hilltop. So it's best to know what you're calling out so you don't call out the wrong stuff. It's just little things, yeah. you know, yeah. 20 years of doing it. It's my dad before he passed away being a Green Beret. He was just like, you know, Aaron, he said we would do these stress tests for like 72 hours out of Camp Williams where they would send us with a map and a grid and say, you got to go from point A to point yep. B and expect contact. And so here they are doing what they signed up to do, get into contact. They're like, we want to go get into contact. Okay. So they're going on the stress test. And he's like, at the end of it, all we do is get to a fire and some other dude in a beanie stoking the fire saying, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, where's the contact? He's like airsoft. This was back in like, Oh, four Oh five. He's like, I see this being, you know, an actual tangible thing where I, I could get hit and it can be used. And now today, dad, I love you. I know you're in heaven or wherever you're at. I have used airsoft in military settings against the military in this exact thing at Camp Williams. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say. Yeah. 
it matters. Uh, it's a you know it's a better. I think there's a lot of practicality there. It's also like you can take it up and, and train with it anywhere. We it's did cheaper uh, than like Sims. We did that? Yeah, yeah. We we did sim munitions that like blue paint stuff, yeah. and you know it's not okay. You get a little bit more blowback or whatever. There's some safety things, whatever. Having to switch out the barrels and all the stuff that was a huge hassle. Yep. I remember like the first time we they used that up. stuff. We did some. We had some raid scenario, and the whole thing got fucked up just because everyone's masks fogged, right? Mm-hmm. And like people hadn't, like we hadn't quite figured out like how to set up our optics to like clear the mask we were wearing, and it was like, okay, right, you needed like a riser mount on it so you could yeah, see through over that. it, and versus yeah, and like yeah, you know the the mask wasn't something we planned around, and like okay, it was realistic sort of in kick or whatever, but at the end of the day, it had made it so Everything unrealistic in other scenarios that yep. didn't really. Yeah, like it didn't really, didn't really. So now today, you can just wear a pair of like, let's just say these are safety glasses, and there's a mesh mask that covers your teeth, so you can still breathe. Yeah. And so the whole breathability prevents the fogging of your lenses. So you don't want to shoot your teeth yeah. out. You don't want to shoot your eyes yeah. out. So what do you got to do? Instead of wearing the full headgear, you just wear a lower mesh mask and then some eye pro, and you do have the nose area and like your orbital susceptible to being shot. But I mean, come on, you get you deserve it. Yeah, so like you know, some, some dueling <laughs> scars or whatever. But you know, that, and that's, yeah, exactly. Like your throat gets shot, but I mean, honestly, it's your teeth. That's the number one injury is teeth shot out in airsoft. People not taking precautions to wear their mask. Or my one airman up here at Hill, he's like, he comes up, he's like, uh, I was like, oh, did you get your tooth shot out, dude? He's like, uh huh. And I was like, don't drink no water. And he wanted to immediately drink water when I said that. Uh-huh. And it just was, it, yeah. And I said, where's your mask? You've been wearing it all day. He's like, I took it off for the last game. It's like, bro dude yeah well even, even with things like that you also i think you realize what the more likely mechanisms of injury are right like the amount of times yeah um when i was there something i would get shot in the- trips and falls and you realize like oh like yeah. close range like yeah like people you know aim center mass or weapon center mass you get hit in the hands you Often. know ricochets too like that was something that we were told quite a lot about for our like cover shoot drills in recon like a big thing for counter ambush stuff and to effectively counter ambushes when you get in them. This is something that came from like Parisian cell scouts thing. And we were told about it and we tested it a few times live fire and we're like, okay, yeah, like cool, this works. But is this maybe in the realm of like seventies cop videos where this is some crazy theory and it has no practicality in real life. And the few times I did airsoft, I was like, Oh dude, I'm getting stuff bouncing around and bouncing off things all the time. And yeah. I'm sure this is plastic or whatever, but bullets small and it's it's the same thing. So maybe I need to reconsider that. All hits count. Stuff. And we call that. Yeah. 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 And we say all hits count here so that you don't have this, oh, I got shot in the ass cheek. I'm alive. No, man. Just get rid of any. If you get shot, you think you got shot, you die. Yeah. Just die. Just call it and start over. Yeah. And then if you have a question about ricochets, just ask Ronald Reagan if they're real or not. Okay. <laughs> because that's how he got shot, my yeah. friend. His limousine yeah. window was what ricocheted their bullet when they were fighting over the Uzi the guy had or whatever, and it shot into Reagan. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was a ricochet off his limousine's window. It wasn't even like a direct shot at Reagan. Yeah, and no doubt, though, no doubt, like the window was bulletproof, right? Wow. Okay. Exactly. On his limo, on his own limo, his own limo's bulletproof window ricocheted into the president's gut. Yeah, because okay, they were tackling reason. him when he was coming at him with the yeah. gun. Yeah, so that's why I say ricochets count. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
for sure they do. Like that's you know, for sh- for sure they do. For sure they do. And like, now listen, yeah. Robert. Listen, I, I have had you, dude. We've been talking. I love it. And you have a book, right? I do. Tell me the name of your book. Let's get that on this. Tell me it's, the name of your book. It's the name of the book. It's my first book. It's a photo book. It's Afghan style. Big book. Don't get intimidated. There are chapters, but there are very few words. So Afghan style, I started working on with my first trip as a photographer to Afghanistan in 2020. Uh, sorry, 2021. Esquire magazine. I went back in 2022. It was obviously after the Taliban had taken over the country and worked some more on that project. Post-military, I spent a decade now, more than a decade now, working as a fashion photographer, right? And most specifically covering fashion weeks around the world. I think at, at the peak of that, pre-2020, I was doing like 25 fashion weeks a year and traveling 35 weeks out of the year. Really paying attention to personal style, cultural style around the world, kind of what's going on culturally with that. But really like living in the minutia of just obsessing and examining what people are wearing and what it says, right? In 2018, no, I think it was 2017, I started doing conflict reporting. So I went to Kurdistan and Northern Iraq when ISIS was getting pushed out of Mosul, the closing several months of that conflict. So that kind of led me to an intersection of these two interests, which is the book Afghan Style. For me, you know, personally, and since this is in the context of kind of a a military environment, Afghanistan was the place that I thought about every single day since the first time I went there. I really expected kind of like an old lover, like one day you would just get over it and you'd stop thinking about it, right? Especially my final deployment ended with bin Laden being killed. And to me, like, I was like, really, I think this chapter of my life is over now. But, you know, a decade on, I'm still thinking about this place every single day. The same with my teammates, like we still have something to still talk about when something comes up in the news. And I just kind of felt on an instinctive, emotional level, like, I want to go back to this place. And I don't know what I expect to find or what I expect to learn. But I feel like if I confront this with an experience, I'll find some kind of resolution, which I did. I spent about a month and a half there on this first trip. I studied a bit of Dari. I was living in Kabul. I wasn't living in a hotel. I wasn't living on a base somewhere. And I spent almost every single day of that month and a half just on the street, interacting with people, taking photos, biking around, making friends, um, and kind of like getting into it and learning. And when I came away, I had way more photos than I needed for this before I did for Esquire. I'd come to really understand Afghan culture. And also in a, in a way that the military experience that I had there never had. I didn't feel like in two deployments I'd ever come to understand Afghans at all. They were a mystery when I arrived. They were a mystery when I left. And I think anyone, even just in a military context who studies military strategy, knows it's a it's an extreme error not to understand uh, both your allies and your adversaries, right? In this case, Afghanistan could be, Afghans could be either, and I didn't understand them. So after this month and a half trip, I really felt like I understood them a little bit. And also, I had a lot of respect for them. They were the most prideful people I'd ever met in my entire life. Like, pride, what pride means to an Afghan man is has no equivalent in Western society. It's it's everything to people who have nothing. So I came to respect them a lot for that. And my own kind of personal obsession with style, these guys were kind of like the quintessence of it, right? They have nothing. They're starving. They're illiterate. Their life expectancy is like 50 if they're lucky. If they're 50 years old, they spent 40 of those years inside of some kind of war. In war. Yeah. If anyone has an excuse to just like dress like shit and not worry about it, it's these guys. 
right? And yet, almost every single Afghan that I met really put such attention and care in what they were wearing, right? It's like mm-hmm. old machine sure. commanders who've like lost legs and don't really have much going for them in life and probably only have two sets of clothing and they're still ironing it out and tailoring it and like looking presentable each day. It's the attention and care that they put into like grooming and etiquette. All that stuff really, it just impressed me and it blew me away. And I was like, you know what? I want to create a volume that is a study of their style. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen to Afghanistan in 2021. Yeah. I think everyone had the sense that the government was going to collapse, but we didn't think it was going to happen as soon as it did. So this kind of became a historical document for me. Like the Afghanistan that I've had the privilege of photographing, that I've been entangled with for more than a decade now in my own life, almost two decades actually, will probably not exist a decade from now, right? The country's isolated economically, geographically. When those gates eventually open, because the Taliban dissolves or they modernize or whatever, the clothing and the culture will disappear and recede. I had committed to a book, doing a book, when the Taliban swept across the country in August. And I was meant to go back that summer. I remember like getting my visa. Like I, I had three visas for the country, trying to go back. The wheels really came off. There was no way to get back in the country. My friends there were freaking out and trying to get out. And at that point, I realized, okay, like the story's changed. I can't publish this book anymore because this things have changed historically in the period of six months to an irreparable degree. The Taliban is now in control. This isn't a complete document anymore. So about a year went by. I was still working on the book with a publisher, but we mutually decided that I was going to go back to Afghanistan under Taliban rule and attempt to add more to the project to talk about what has historically changed since they've taken power. I was meant to go in spring. Obviously, Ukraine happened. That got pushed back. I went up going in August, which was you know unmercifully hot. It meant integrating face-to-face and with the full acknowledgement of the Taliban. They run the government there. You're not doing anything, including leaving the airport without their permission. It was extremely strange to be sitting in multiple rooms of Taliban armed with American weapons, using American equipment, and kind of getting their permission to go around the country and take these photos, photographing Taliban inside of you know former American compounds. A lot of the guys that I met had been fighting against Americans. One that I met had been in an American military prison for like two years. That was pretty, like, it was very gut-wrenching and, and weird. Like, surely they've got Google and they know who I am and who my, you know, what my background is. In the end, you know, the conclusion wasn't positive, right? You have to look back on a 20-year endeavor that didn't really accomplish anything, especially for Afghans. Um, yeah. You can quite clearly, especially if you spent time there and understand the culture, that's one of the reasons I wanted to make the book, you can really clearly see the obvious mistakes that were made. But there was resolution for me because like, okay, the outcome is not positive here, but I've seen the thing and I've been a part of the thing and I've confronted it. And I understand it, understanding what went wrong and why it went wrong. That's given me personally some kind of peace where I'm much more okay with it than a lot of other veterans I know who served in Afghanistan and that's kind of that's been worth it I also hope that like the book's been very well received by Afghans and just by you know by the public in general we've done a little bit of a book tour in Europe and I'm doing one I'm sure you would like you want that blessing from them you know you 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 really want to showcase them and show off the yeah it's 
the fact it's not it's like not expected like i didn't this wasn't a book for afghans because we're from afghanistan like you all know these things already that wasn't really the design the design was really like i want to make a document that's approachable that's non-political and non-religious and presents the side of afghanistan that we never bothered to understand and that we also led to massive miscalculations on the western world side which was understanding their culture and their pride right so it's really a document designed to present to the West and be Western facing. But I did find that there was a huge expat community of Afghans who found out about the book, like they're super well networked and were into it and were like buying copies and coming to signings. And that wasn't the goal. That wasn't the expected outcome, but it was, it was really enjoyable because I was like, okay, sure. This is actually something that the Afghan community has wanted for a long time to be presented outside of the context of just like, poverty, uh, poverty, homelessness, civil war, destitution, religious conflict, right? Like, I didn't realize how much that weighed on them. But you know, everywhere anti women rights. Yeah, like, you know, just someone to speak about their to speak about their culture outside of conflict, right. Part, right. That was really gratifying. Um, that's been a good part of it. And I'm working on like a little US tour with the book. We've done Europe now. So I'm looking forward to like doing something in LA, San Francisco, definitely New York, and I hope DC. Very cool. Yeah, that's kind of the that's the plans for the book. Is there where where can can they can we put a link in down on the in the bio here for it? Is there someplace we can find Afghan style? So, by yeah, Robert yeah. Spangler? Um, so my publisher, which is uh in, in in the English pronunciation because they're French, would be Editions Odyssey, but it's Editions Odyssey. Their website has the book. I'm sold out of books. <laughs> I have some. I have Good. a few special editions, which would each come with a print from the book, and also come from a come with an artifact from the trips, so like a passport page or a film wow. negative or one of my um, field note pages. So, if you want a special edition, you can still get it from me. Those ship free. My publisher has the standard copies as well as I think a few of the special editions, and. I will have more of my own copies and I do have a little reserve that I'm going to take with me when I travel around the country doing the book tour. So chances are, mm, if yeah, you're interested, cool. I'm coming to your town and I will try not to burn it down. <laughs> no, do it. Come down, come to Salt Lake city, bro. You come I right actually, here to I me. Really we'll come, do, we'll hang out. I really want to do Salt Lake city. You know, a good, like if anyone's out there and you've got, you know, a bookshop or a connection to one and you want to do like, Oh, a bookshop like Sam Weller's. Let me give him a plug. Okay. Weller's is a mom and pop shop in Salt Lake City. Oh, okay. Right. Amazing. Like that's the kind of thing I'm yeah. looking for because the, you know, because I've already described sort of my personal goal of the book, but my outward goal is I want to bring this book to as many Americans as I possibly can. That's really who it's designed for. And I find like the person to person interaction of being there with the book, to be able to explain it to people and talk about each image. That's super gratifying. So like, Super cool. Too. Salt Lake City, like any, basically any city. And yes, if you've got a bookstore that is interested in hosting something like this, like I'm all about it. I'd love to do it. That's the that is the final goal of the book. Well, that's awesome, and I think that we can wind this down. We've been going at it, and I could keep talking. Oh man, to we could be here all day. I, and I, <laughs> I really, we really could. We really could. But I think the commander at the 505th Airborne 82nd Inf- Infantry Division might have to go home right now. Who listens? He wrote me a letter saying, "Rad." I listen every single week to your show. I want to thank you. Something like that. And I want to say, what's up? Shout out to the, I think it's the 505th. What's up, bro? Parachute Regiment. 
honorary colonel. I'm, a, I'm yeah, one of the dude, rare airborne cool. marines, so I'm I'm in favor of letting this guy go home and. Uh, you got your gold yard. wings, or do you have just silver wings? I got gold wings. Uh, my oh, so you did all the different jumps. Yeah, so my team within Force Recon was the we were the, we were the static line jump team because we were the junior guys, but oh, we we're all yeah. golden qualified. And then I actually went out with an outfit as a civilian called World War II ADT World War II Airborne Demonstration Team, and they jump out of World War II C forty sevens. So I jumped with them. So I also cool. got my army actual like army issued wings from them. So yeah, the so silver jump wings. Cool, cool. Yeah, I got. Well, airborne. <laughs> That's the thing my dad always say. He say, "You're a leg, but you're my leg, son." And I was <laughs> like, "All right, dad, thanks." <laughs> and with that said, giving dad a shout out and mom, I just want to say thanks again, Robert, for taking the time out of your busy day and your and your book and everything that you're doing with designing to be on the show with Soft Rep. And thanks to my listener for taking the time to listen to the show. And I hope that something uh, hits you in the feels, you know and we should be supporting good and not evil in this world. And we should be able to have conversations with one another without, I hope you just saw what we just had a conversation with one another. Yeah. So all about it. Per, all about it. And, uh, Robert, I hope to see you soon. If not at shot show or someplace very no, soon in Salt Lake city, I gotta get back. Yeah. I'll be there this, I'll be there next time as well. Covering for soft rep. So we'll link up for sure. And, um, my man, I'm going to wind it down and say on behalf of everybody here at Soft Rep, my guest, Robert Spangle, Thousand Yard Style on Instagram. My name is Rad. I'm your host. Go check out the merch shop, the book club. And thanks again, Brandon, and everybody at Soft Rep. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.